0: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Welcome to another Plus episode for premium subscribers and thanks as always for your support. Dr. Peter McCullough is board certified in internal medicine, cardiovascular diseases, and clinical lipidology. He's been extremely critical of the mass COVID vaccination program, particularly the huge push to vaccinate children. He's testified before the U.S. Senate's Health and Human Services Committee, and he's a strong advocate for early intervention and treatment of COVID and the use of therapeutics such as ivermectin. Dr. Peter McCullough, how are you? Thanks for having me. Good. So the American frontline doctors have launched a suit seeking to revoke the emergency COVID vaccines based on what they say is disturbing new mortality data. Tell me about this data and how do they get it?
1: Well, Americans have been watching the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System data, which is a spontaneous uh, data reported largely by doctors and nurses after patients have had vaccination, including deaths. Well, the VAERS database has about 6,000 recorded deaths in there, which is astronomical. Normally, we'd shut down a vaccine after 50 deaths. Well, what uh, American frontline doctors did is they actually went to the CMS data, Center for Medicare, Medicare Services. Which is the government uh, insurance for people over 65, those under 65 who are disabled, and Medicaid, those are people below a certain economic point. And there are a lot of people in the CMS database, and they found roughly five times as many deaths because CMS records all of them. It's not spontaneously recorded. So there must be an overlap between VARES and CMS. We haven't seen all the data yet. They have an inside uh, whistleblower. From CMS, that's worked with American Frontline Doctors, the lead attorney is Tom Rentz.
0: And this is uh, coming from a whistleblower inside the, the CDC or inside the CMS?
1: Inside CMS.
0: Most people would not have access to the CMS data. Is that correct?
1: No, it's public use data, believe it or not. It's public use data. It's just that most people don't know how to actually access it through the public systems and work with it.
0: How credible is this whistleblower? Do, do we know anything about this person?
1: You know, I'm not on the inside of the suit, but I, I do trust the lead attorney, Mr. Rents, and uh, he must have had a lot of confidence to put his, really his entire reputation on the line with a major suit to shut down the U.S. vaccination program.
0: So uh, do we have any breakdown on the numbers coming from CMS CMS, in terms of the mortality rate? Do we have it broken down by age?
1: No, we don't. We do know from VARES though, we know from uh, two important external analyses of vares one by McLaughlin and the other one by Rose, showing that those who die are typically in their 70s or 80s. We know 50% of them die within 48 hours of the injection. We know 80% of them die within a week of the injection. And we know that 86% of them have no other immediate cause of death. They were healthy enough, they walked into a vaccine center, and they died.
0: So when we talk about the vaccine adverse event reporting system, we always say, um, and rightfully so, that correlation is not causation. Can we say the same thing, or should we be saying the same thing about the CMS data?
1: Well, we apply what's called the Hill's Tennis of Causality, which means that, is it temporally related? Well, it's clearly related in time to the shots. Uh, is it internally consistent within the US, Canada, Europe? Yes. Is it, is it uh, uh, externally consistent among all these different countries? The answer is yes. And the last thing is, is there a biologic, biologically plausible explanation? The answer is yes. The vaccines hijack our genetics, have our bodies produce the dangerous spike protein. Probably in some people, it's too much spike protein. It's too hot and heavy. The bodies can't tolerate it, and it's lethal.
0: Is it broken down by vaccine? Do we know if these uh, individuals received... X number have received the Pfizer, X number received the Moderna.
1: I haven't seen the mortality data broken down by vaccine, but I've seen the overall number of safety reports. And the answer is they're the highest per shot risk for Pfizer and Moderna and the lowest for j and I
0: had Dr. Robert Malone, the inventor of the mRNA vaccine. He, he was concerned about the dosage of the Moderna. He says it's way too high. Have you heard anything about that?
1: Well, dose wasn't well worked out for these vaccines, and people are even more concerned about the pediatric dosing. Uh, What we do know is that some individuals, these vaccines circulate widely. They're taken up into the brain, the heart, the other vital organs. And the analysis by Rose published in the American Journal of Public Policy and Law uh, showed that for the non-fatal reactions, they tend to um, actually be skewed towards younger populations, probably because younger, healthier cells take up more of the genetic material express the dangerous spike protein and then it damages tissues
0: so what is the status of this lawsuit do you know you know what the next step is uh, what what court will will be hearing this case
1: well I know it was filed I know this morning there were some uh, initial proceedings that took place led by attorney rents in the United States and, and he may be offering a press release later on this afternoon or potentially early next week but Uh, I tell you, this is a very strong shot on goal to shut down the vaccination program in the United States.
0: I wanted to ask you about the Delta variant. We're hearing so much about the Delta variant, and I'm a little confused because as far as I know, the PCR test doesn't uh, detect one variant over another, or am I missing something? How do they know about this Delta variant? Are they able to
1: test for it? You're right. The PCR test just detects the virus. It cannot detect the strain. There has to be what's called sequencing done for the strain. So countries do take select samples and actually do the detailed genomic sequencing. The CDC does this in the United States. And as of July 17th, 83% of cases in the United States are Delta. Now the CDC is not yet uh, stratifying by Delta Plus. So we knew June 11th, the UK variant report indicated that, in fact, there was an additional mutation to Delta that probably made it even more uh, likely to be prevalent in the population The Delta Plus. So I think what Canada and the United States are seeing right now is Delta Plus. What you need to know is it's far milder than the original Wuhan uh, uh, wild-type virus. It mean, be nothing like Milan, New York, New Jersey, what we saw earlier. This is much more like the common cold. Uh, there'll be an occasional senior citizen who needs Treatment. Uh, we know that over time there's been a predilection to over-hospitalizing people because the hospitals were financially incentivized to do that. So we really can't follow the hospitalization data. Uh, we know that Delta is a much more uh, mild variant and it should be treated early at home.
0: I keep hearing that that it uh, from people like yourself that it is a much more mild variant, and this is what variants tend to do: they become more easily transmissible but less fatal. And yet we keep hearing from the mainstream media and TV doctors, let's call them, that this is a deadly strain. Why? Why are they telling us this?
1: Well, they're um, misleading the public on two important points. Uh, a is not um, more deadly; it's less deadly. The UK uh, 17th variant report on June 25th showed that the mortality with Delta was. Uh, 0.8, where it was 1.8 with the original uh, UK variant, and they don't even treat it very well. As you remember, the biggest determinant of mortality is it was it wasn't treated early, and of course, stratified by age and risk factors. The other fraudulent thing that's going on in the United States is they're saying that 99% of hospitalizations and cases are do, are due in the unvaccinated. Well, the CDC in the United States declared end of April, it will not report breakthrough cases in those who are vaccinated. So we're only seeing one side of the equation. They are being willfully blind and willfully suppressing all the breakthrough cases of the vaccine. So we know in Israel and the United Kingdom right now that the vaccine doesn't provide any protection against Delta. It's wide open. 80% of patients in Israel right now who who have COVID-19 and the Delta variant, in fact, have been vaccinated. It's about 40% of those in the UK. So the vaccine at this point in time is obsolete
0: let me just back up there. The vaccine at this point in time, you said is obsolete because the primary variant now is Delta, Delta Plus. The vaccines, Pfizer, Moderna, they are useless against these variants?
1: They appear fundamentally useless. There is a paper in New England Journal of Medicine that tried to analyze what the benefit, if any, of vaccination is at this point in time by Thompson and colleagues And it it, it, uh, demonstrated that in freshly vaccinated individuals, that the vaccine could reduce the number of sickness days from 3.8 to 1.5 days. Uh, These are relatively well people at home who would need the vaccine anyway, Uh, but that doesn't offer any mortality or survival benefit. It doesn't stop the virus. This is very important. We have now four pieces of evidence. We have the Houston wedding. We have the Democratic a plane flight of all the legislators from Texas, uh, and we have the uh, British naval vessel. All fully vaccinated people who came off their trips or their events and developed COVID. So I was telling you uh, that that these individuals who are vaccinated, they can carry the Delta variant and they can transmit it to someone else. And a paper from Farinhold in Houston has now demonstrated this. So I'm telling you, vaccinated patients, they acquire Delta. They can carry it and give it to others.
0: Uh, getting back to the variant for a moment and uh, these vaccines, we keep being told repeatedly hit over the head, in fact, that the pandemic is now a pandemic of the unvaccinated. I know you've touched on this in the in the previous segment, but just if you could uh, just spell it out for us again, is this pandemic now a pandemic of the unvaccinated?
1: No, it's not. In fact, it's a pandemic of those who are vaccinated who don't have natural immunity, we know that about 25% of people who took the vaccine did it unnecessarily. In fact, they had natural immunity from having the prior infection. Those who've had the prior infection of any strain have robust, complete, and durable immunity. They can't get it again, and they can't get Delta. So the best thing to know in the workplace is who's actually really had COVID. Those are the people who are truly immune. Those who are vaccinated, or those who are unvaccinated, and they haven't previously had COVID, they are susceptible to having uh, Delta, but it's a very mild infection. It's like a cold. They'll get through it, and they will be rewarded with natural immunity.
0: The uh, French virologist, Professor Luc Montagnier, Nobel Prize winner, has said that it is the vaccine that is causing the variant. What are your thoughts on that?
1: There is an analysis from Neeson and colleagues from Boston and Mayo Clinic showing that when we get to more than 25% of the vaccinated population, we actually start to reduce the diversity of strains and actually promote a dominant strain. And in fact, that's exactly what's happened. Delta is our dominant strain because they started vaccinating in in India with the Sinovac vaccine. They were using the same vaccine in Peru and they've actually promoted the Lambda variant. And now out of California, Pfizer, Moderna and J&J have promoted the Epsilon variant. So, vaccination, more than 25% of the population does backfire in terms of producing these dominant strains. Fortunately, they're milder and we can get through it.
0: You've testified before the, the Senate, the U.S. Senate uh, on a number of occasions. Is anyone in Washington now listening to what you and others are having to say about uh, the vaccines causing the variants and the fact that the, the best immune response comes from those with a prior infection? Is anyone listening?
1: Well, unnamed key sources in Washington have told me privately, Dr. McCullough, we have the biggest biological catastrophe in modern American history You know, going on right now. We've had two administrations buy into this completely. We have a medical dictator in charge. We don't have any uh, teams of doctors working. We don't have any new ideas. The press is completely bought into this. And talking points are being doled out. And everybody is following these talking points. It was obvious the other day, the talking point was that this is a crisis of the unvaccinated. And everyone just parroted this up and down the media and in all the government officials. It's obvious it's a propagandized program.
0: There's a, uh, I'm not sure if you can comment on this, but there is a a rather strange, unidentified uh, neurological illness happening in the East Coast of Canada. They're calling it a, a mystery illness, and um, the officials have been sending out 50,000 postcards to people to learn more about it. Uh, what do you know about this, this, this illness that has claimed, I believe, uh, six lives? And some say that it, it uh, presents as critsfield Jacob disease.
1: I'm greatly concerned that it could be uh, pointing to vaccine neurologic injury. And I've seen this in my office. We know the messenger RNA and the adenoviral DNA goes up into the brain. And once it starts to produce the spike protein there, in fact, it makes sense. The spike protein is damaging the tissues. It causes micro blood clots. It damages blood vessel cells, and it actually damages cells. Not only that, the spike protein is on the cell surface of the cells. So then the immune system attacks our own cells. It's conceivable that late after vaccination we could have the emergence of neurologic syndromes. And indeed, Senator Ron Johnson held the first vaccine injury town hall, and they were loaded with neurologic vaccine injuries from seizures, blindness, inability to swallow, need for feeding tubes, difficulty in walking. It's really been a disaster to see these uh, roll out. And in fact, that may be what this is about in Canada.
0: I'll have to keep an eye on it, obviously. This is uh, very disturbing. 48 people sick so far on the East Coast to your happy place for a happy price go to your happy price price line final question is a general philosophical question despite all of this information that you've been putting out and others that counter the the official narrative it seems as as if public officials, medical uh, health officials, and politicians, certainly up here in Canada, elsewhere, just keep doubling down. We're now talking about you know uh, vaccine passports in France, where you can't even go into a grocery store unless you have proof of vaccination, restricting travel in in, in Greece. In Manitoba, uh, same thing. How is this going to end?
1: Boy, at some point in time, there must be some capitulation. I don't know if everybody with the vaccine gets sick altogether and They can't do anything at all, or is there just going to be a lawsuit or something that brings it down? At this point in time, um, my my talking points have always been, listen, we got to treat the illness, treat the sick patients, get them through it, treat early, avoid hospitalization and death. Um, I was generally neutral on the vaccine in December, January, February, once we had bad safety data by that time. Uh, we, we couldn't generally recommend it. At this point in time, the vaccine, and there are multiple calls for this. The vaccine program needs to be shut down worldwide. We need to save lives. We're causing harm. The vaccine simply doesn't work and it's unsafe.
0: You spoke recently about the persistence of the spike protein in the body post-vaccine. Tell me about that.
1: We learned from Dr. Bruce Patterson, who's a leading pathologist who trained at University of Michigan, Northwestern. He's been faculty at Northwestern and Stanford, uh, in a late breaking study July 29th, and then presented in September uh, in the Rome Summit, that after the SARS-CoV-1 respiratory infection, the S1 segment of the spike protein can be found in human monocytes up to 15 months after the infection. And then now about a week ago on America Out Loud Talk Radio, the McCullough report, I had Dr. Patterson on. And he presented the data he has now in vaccinated individuals. There, it's even worse. It looks like both the S1 and the S2 segment, so the full breadth of the spike protein, which we know is dangerous to the human body, can be found in uh, the plasma and the cells in individuals who have taken the vaccine now for months afterwards. And of course, the longer the vaccine program goes on, the longer duration we'll have to assess this. But there's great concern now that these vaccines uh, are not um, uh, 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 they're not short acting at all. In fact, they are producing spike protein that lasts in the body for months. And if we exceed certainly six months, and if we get on a six month booster injection schedule, spike protein accumulation will happen in the human body.
0: After two doses, do we know how long the spike protein remains in the body?
1: To be conservative right now, we, we would estimate that the spike protein exposure after vaccination is actually much greater than the respiratory infection and it's the same protein. So we know that's the fact, it's the original Wuhan spike protein from the lab in China. So uh, I would say to be conservative, it's 15 months after each injection. So you can imagine right now in the United States, we do shot one a month later, shot two immunocompromised, another month later, shot three, and now a six month booster. We have four shots within six months. I can tell you that's going to take years to get that out of the human body. I was on Australian TV and shockingly, I learned that Australia has already purchased 14 doses per person. That's seven years of this, Richard. It will never get out of the body. It's going to accumulate to massive levels.
0: What do you ex- expect to see in terms of disease uh, if the spike protein remains in the body for years and years?
1: The only analogous situation we have, Dr. Patterson updated me on this, is actually Lyme disease. So Lyme disease gives uh, get, leaves remnants of the Lyme organism, Borrelia borgdorae. Or for, in the body, uh, for at least for several months or a few years. With this, this is the spike protein, and it's a massive quantity of spike protein. It's been found uh, in autopsy in the brain. It, it's directly found in the heart, the bone marrow. It causes a blood vessel damage, a, a blood clotting. And if it can be found in the circulating monocytes for months afterwards, that means these risks of, of blood clotting and vascular damage go on for a long period of time after vaccination.
0: And the spike protein, in the body after an infection. How long does that persist? And is that dangerous?
1: The longest has been found is in 15 months. And what we believe, and Dr. Patterson uh, helped update me on this, is that with early treatment, we can shut down the infectivity period from 14 days to four days. That gives a, long, a lesser run of the spike protein in the body. And hopefully they, people can clear it out of their bodies. But no wonder people get long COVID syndrome. This makes a lot of sense now. Long COVID syndrome is a three or six month syndrome of brain fog, fatigue, sometimes peripheral neuropathy, et cetera. It makes sense because the Wuhan spike protein is persisting in the body. Let's get back to the boosters for a moment.
0: They are, or were designed to combat the original wave of the
1: infection were they not that's true boosters are still the same product and in the same dose it's just given uh, at a later time period we know now 22 studies show the vaccines basically run out of protection after six months so they're very short acting but they haven't been changed to cover the Delta variant. And now we see a new variant coming out of South Africa that's very heavily mutated, just hit Israel. They're holding emergency meetings today. I can tell you the vaccines cannot be changed quickly enough to cover the wildly mutating virus.
0: This new strain, scientists are describing it as having extremely long branches and a high amount of spike mutations. So tell me about the likelihood that the booster would have any impact on this new strain.
1: We simply don't know. The uh, Remember the original vaccines code against the 1200 amino acid Wuhan wild type spike protein with just minor one minor change in that spike protein. And so it's the antibodies are just directed against one protein. With the natural infection, there are 27 proteins. So we have a, a much broader library of antibodies. And with the natural infection, we have probably a hundred to a thousand fold greater T cell, natural killer cell and plasma cell uh, reactions to the virus. So the natural immunity is robust, complete and durable. Even our CDC agrees now, you can't get the virus a second time. There are no second cases where people have spread the virus. It's a one and done situation. But with the respiratory infection, uh, uh, we, with the um, mutations in the virus that we're seeing, particularly with this latest virus, Uh, it's far more mutated. To give you an example, when we went from the wild type virus to the uh, British variant or alpha, it was a one, one amino acid change. And then from alpha to beta, it was another amino acid change. And then we went from beta to gamma, the same thing, a couple amino acids. Delta virus was originally seven mutations in the spike protein. Now we're looking at 30 to 50 mutations in the spike protein. It's going to be dramatically different. What we're seeing is what's called antigenic escape. The spike protein is changing its conformation to dodge the vaccine-induced antibodies.
0: The extremely long branches in these in this protein. What does that mean exactly?
1: It just means the confirmation is changing. It's the same amino acids. It's not getting longer to my knowledge, but uh, it's changing its confirmation and it can be longer or shorter. But what it's doing is it's hiding its epitopes. It's, hide, it's hiding the landing spots for the vaccine antibodies to attach. So therefore the antibodies uh, are raised after the vaccine, but they float around. They don't do anything. They don't provide any protection.
0: Are these strains following the typical mutations of a coronavirus in that they get more transmissible, but less deadly?
1: I think so. You know, Definitely more transmissible, primarily because the vaccine immunity is not sterilized. The vaccine immunity just allows the virus to flourish in the nose and the mouth of those who are vaccinated. Uh, we're hoping it's less deadly, although the mortality of the SARS-CoV-2 infection is completely dependent on early treatment. If we simply would treat it, we can influence mortality rates uh, dramatically. I got to tell you firsthand, I treat COVID-19 in my practice. I think Delta was harder to treat than Alpha and Beta. It seemed like it was a more uh, virulent infection. It lasted longer. It hit younger people. Boy, I hope we don't get this new one landing over here in North America.
0: The FDA recently published their briefing notes on the Pfizer vaccine in anticipation of rolling out the vaccine for five to 12-year-olds. And in the briefing notes, it seems to acknowledge that we won't know about the safety of the, uh, the vaccine for five to 12-year-olds for another five years. In other words, the the study group was too small, I guess, to reveal any safety signals. Can you talk to me about that?
1: The data presented at the Pfizer meeting ages 5 to 11 were insufficient to assure us on safety. That was the great concern. Dr. Rubin, the uh, editor of New England Journal of Medicine on the external panel said the only way we'll find out if they're safe is just to try it in children that, uh, that young. And I think that statement is reckless reprehensible and will go down in history is one of the most irresponsible things an academic physician has ever said. We never just try out a product on a large scale on small defenseless children uh, to, to, to see if it's going to be safe or not. That I can tell you right now, everything we know about these vaccines is not going to be safe in that group. And there will be children who are harmed when they're forced into vaccination. So it's unacceptable to not have enough safety information and still uh, proceed forward with an EUA approval.
0: I've seen some data that suggests that the incidence of myocarditis after, for the Pfizer shot in younger people is about 1 in 5,000. Does that, would it make sense that that risk would increase with each subsequent shot? In other words, each dose would increase the incidence of myocarditis, or are we not in a position to say that?
1: We have multiple studies and case reports. The best one to quote is by Hogan colleagues, University of California, Davis. It clearly myocarditis jumps up dramatically from shot one to shot two. Now, we don't know what's going to happen on shot three, but there are now papers from Korea, one by Lim and one by Choi, showing that fatal and near fatal cases uh, that require hospitalization and uh, sadly uh, having a young man die in Korea. Can occur on either shot one or shot two, but it clearly amplifies, as does the general reactions to the vaccine with progressive shots, because it makes sense because we're loading the body with more spike protein with each injection.
0: The FDA recently announced they were going to release the documents on Pfizer over a period of 55 years, something like 500 pages per month, which would take us to 2176. First of all, are they trying to hide something there or is is this typical?
1: No, it's just not typical. It's clearly they have something to hide. Lead attorney Aaron Siri and his co-counsel Elizabeth Brem uh, through a lawsuit, actually suing the federal government and Pfizer for release of the data to 30 national experts to review it carefully for Americans. And I'm one of the 30 national experts as an internist cardiologist and a trained epidemiologist. Um, I am very familiar with analyzing safety data. We know that the volume of pages, as you implied, is in the hundreds of thousands, but this is not uncommon for safety review committees. I see this all the time. We will review 14 to, to 20,000 pages in a safety report. We can do it. But the point is they want 55 years to release information that's known now. This is known now. Americans can't wait 55 years. I'm not going to live 55 years to be on the panel. They clearly have something to hide. This lack of transparency about what's in the Pfizer vaccine, what does it do to the human body, and, and what are the implications? Now, this is unacceptable. Americans, Canadians, everyone all over should be mortified with this request by the U.S. FDA to block release of critical information for 55 years and at the same time force people into vaccination with this product. You say
0: to find out what's in those vaccines. Are you saying that to this date, we're still not clear on the ingredients in the Pfizer vaccine?
1: Not all the ingredients have been disclosed, nor what they do in the human body. I I think it's much more about the uh, safety data that came in through the preclinical and uh, clinical phases of the a program, particularly about the spike protein, conformation of the spike protein, we can just stay within the boundaries of what's known. Uh, and particularly the messenger RNA, uh, the synthetic nucleoside analog cabs, how long do they stay in the body? What type of thermogenic reactions do they have in cells? It is so abnormal. It's almost like a science fiction movie to say that we're going to have our body, have the genetics of cells in our body be taken over to produce an abnormal protein that was genetically modified in a virology lab in Wuhan, China, and we're going to do this to people all over the world. It's almost like we're living out in a movie, but it's actually occurring in real life. Are there any new
0: studies regarding that show an increase in risk of heart attacks following the mRNA COVID vaccine?
1: There was an abstract that was just presented at the American Heart Association. It got a lot of attention, and it used a multi marker profile measured before and after vaccination. Now, these markers are fairly well validated in terms of acknowledged triggers that could trigger the human body to have a heart attack if atherosclerosis is there in the coronary arteries. And it was a shocking rise in these triggers of heart attacks in people who took the vaccine. And it makes sense because the US VAERS system has seen a tremendous number of heart attacks after vaccination and people have asked the question, can the vaccines actually trigger a heart attack? That's something different than myocarditis. Can they actually trigger a myocardial infarction? And I can tell you this American Heart Association abstract clearly starts to lay the biologic groundwork for the triggering of myocardial infarction That could easily happen after vaccination. Uh, What
0: age group are we talking about here?
1: We're talking about adults uh, who have atherosclerosis, not young people. So again, this is separate than myocarditis. Let me update you, Richard. November 12, 2021, our U.S. CDC VAERS system is reporting to America that nine thousand three hundred thirty-two heart attacks were reported, largely by healthcare providers, uh, the pharmaceutical companies who make the vaccines, and other stakeholders. They think the vaccines actually cause these heart attacks. That's how they get to be reported in the var system and get certified. Nine thousand three hundred thirty-two heart attacks. That's a pretty serious number, and I can tell you that we, we that should be unacceptable after any voluntary injection. But that's separate than myocarditis. Myocarditis is a heart inflammation caused by The spike protein in young individuals, that number is up to 13,237, a dramatic rise from the 200 cases the CDC and FDA reviewed in June of 2021. Uh,
0: Finally, Dr. McCullough, let's talk about early treatment. Are you suggesting any adjustment to early treatment protocols in light of the new variant?
1: Yeah, with the Delta variant and now the new variant, I can tell you the single most important thing for Canadians and Americans and people all over the world to know is oral nasal decontamination. This is very important. The viral loads are through the roof and we have to knock them down in the nose and mouth. So we use dilute povidone iodine, which is betadine, one or two teaspoons and six ounces of water, an oral gargle, and then a nasal a, a spray with a, basically a nasal bulb syringe and and sniffing that back and spinning it out, basically sterilizing the nasal passages about once or twice a day if you're out uh, around other people to basically stop the virus in its tracks before it invades the body. Uh, we can also use dilute hydrogen peroxide with Lugol's iodine, various types of neti pots or nebulizations, all those work, but people have been focusing on hand sanitizer. It's not transmitted on the hands. It's, it's not a hand infection. It's an infection in the nose and mouth. And we must treat the nose and mouth with an oral nasal decontamination of viral cytol therapy. This is the most important advance do we have to prevention and early treatment. Is there a website you could direct us to where these protocols are listed? Best place to find them uh, is the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, Uh, including a write-up on how to do this, as well as the Truth for Health Foundation. Those are the leading sites now that are advancing this oral-nasal decontamination therapy. And I can tell you, there are seven clinical studies, uh, including a large randomized trial by Chowdhury and colleagues, over 2,000 patients. It really works. I'm using it in my practice, and you don't need a doctor's prescription. This is completely controlled by the individuals. I think this is what Canadians have been waiting for, is something they can do, to defend against the virus that really works.
0: Dr. McCullough, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me. You're doing great work, Richard. Keep it up.
0: Dr. Peter McCullough, board certified cardiologist. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now.